Good morning. The title of the sermon, if you are taking notes this morning, is Karam Deo. Karam Deo. C-O-R-A-M Deo. D-E-O. Karam Deo, translated, means before the face of God. Before the face of God. It's life lived in the presence of, under the sovereignty of, and for the glory of God alone. That's the idea in Koram Deo. I hope you're all having a good Labor Day weekend. I hope you get to enjoy the extended weekend, those of you, or as one of our retired uh, members told me, every day is Labor Day for me. Praise God. Amen. You enjoy all of it. Awesome. For the glory of God, Karam Deo. It's hard to believe at one point in the history of Uh, this country that children were able to go into factory work in various fields of industry as early as five years old. They could go work in the fields or in the mines or wherever uh, for very low wages and work really long hours. And so um, I think we should go back to that. Amen? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, I do put my children to work. Uh, They don't make minimum wage, but their wage is at a minimum. And uh, it, it is good. They're very helpful. If there's anything our country prides itself on, it is the area of work. We labor hard. We work hard. Make a living for ourselves. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, have words of caution for our work this morning. They have words of caution for our work in the home for our work out of the home, for our work in the church, and for many other ways in which we work. Jesus cautions us. If you're just joining us, we wrapped up the first major section of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. This is, we're going through the Sermon of Jesus, and he stated in verses 17 through 20 what we said is the theme of the sermon. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And then he gets in and and transitions to those six examples. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds, you've got to have greater righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees. Without that, you're not going to enter the kingdom at all. And unless your righteousness exceeds there, you will not enter into the kingdom. And then he goes in and he gives six examples of this greater righteousness as he deals with different points of sin in regard to the law. And if there's one thing you need to remember and how Jesus is fulfilling the law, it's not necessarily his exegesis of the law. It's not necessarily interacting with the Pharisees' wrong interpretation, although that's all present. That's not the heart of what he's talking about fulfilling the law. What he's meaning and where you really see that fulfillment starting to come is in that constant refrain, You heard it said, but I say. You heard it said, but I say, but I say, but I say. Jesus is now telling his audience and us, in essence, Moses the servant now gives way to Jesus the son. Check that out. If you're in in Israel and you're there just hearing Torah all the time. Moses is the prophet, and now Jesus is coming to say, and he points to me, I now take precedence. Now listen to me. And Jesus goes on in each of these six examples to show this greater righteousness is a righteousness that starts in the heart and overflows to everything we do think, say, and feel. And so he says, 
It's not enough that you not commit murder. You must not have anger in your heart with your brother. It's not enough that you don't commit adultery. You, you shouldn't even look at a woman to lust on her. And each time he's reorienting the issue to the matter of the heart, the battlefield from the external to the internal. Now, in chapter 6, Jesus is going to transition And he's going to teach, not only should we look at areas of our heart in our sin struggles, but get this, even in positive displays of religious devotion, you need to consider your heart. So it's not just with bad things you do, but even the good things you do, you must consider the aim of your heart. Because it's only when our heart's desires and our actions become in sync with God's purposes that we experience, get this, true wholeness and flourishing as God intended. Only then can we be whole as our heavenly Father is whole, which is exactly how he ended Matthew 5, 48. Even so, you be perfect or whole as your heavenly Father is whole. And so, let's pray and get into it. Father in heaven, As we just sang earlier, we long for the day when in a nobler, sweeter song, we sing your power to save, to save us from the enslaving desire of the praise of men, to save us from the paralyzing fear of man. We long for the day when we are captivated wholly by your glory that we live in every way, karam deo, before your face. And may we experience that now by the power of your Spirit in greater and greater degrees. If there are any in here, Father, who are tempted, as Jeremiah the prophet said, to trade in the fountain of living waters for broken cisterns, may you cause us to repent. If there are any here who are, who are straying, may they come back to the path of life. And Father, others, may we be challenged, sharpened, so that we might increase for the praise and honor of God to show love and gratitude to you, and that others may see our godly behavior and be one to Christ. And so, Father, may you do this here. We also ask that you would do this uh, here, and we want to lift up Jeremy Kanashiro and his family at Palisades Baptist Church on the island of Oahu. We pray that you would bless his ministry, his teaching, his leadership team. We ask that you would keep his marriage solid and rooted in Christ and that you would bless his family in his efforts to bring up his children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. We thank you for his ministry, the ministry of his family, and we pray that you would bless them and preach. And as the gospels preach there, would you draw many to Christ? We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. All right, here's your big idea. Here's it. Here it is for those taking notes. Here's your big idea as I try to capture this section. Kingdom righteousness, so kingdom righteousness, that greater righteousness that exceeds the scribes and fairs. Kingdom righteousness values eternal heavenly reward over temporal human praise. It values eternal heavenly reward over temporal human praise kind of the big idea of this section uh, that comes and it stretches from chapter or sorry chapter 6 verse 1 to verse 21. First point number one Mr. Deeds we're going to see Mr. Deeds and number two we're going to look at Mr. Delight. 
Mr. Deeds and Mr. Delight. I told Nick to track down Adam Sandler to invite him to church this morning, but I'm not sure if that was successful or not. He's, he may be off-island. But Mr. Deeds and Mr. Delight. Number one, Mr. Deeds. Now, in the previous section, just like this section, this is highly structured. It runs all the way from uh, chapter, sorry, verse 1 through verse 21. That's this whole unit there is one unit in the sermon. We're going to break it down into three sermons. We're going to look at uh, verses one through four, and then we'll check out prayer and the Lord's Prayer, and we'll look at fasting and treasures in heaven as we cap it off, and, and, and I might get into it and make it four or five sermons. Who knows? We'll, we'll see how we go, all right? But it's highly structured, Just like the one before, Jesus in verse 1, this is your thematic introduction. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others to be seen by them. That's your thematic introduction, so to speak, all of verse 1. And then he's going to give in each of these sections the rest of what he's dealing with. He's going to address three areas, giving, prayer, and fasting. That's what he's going to address in this whole unit before us. And then he's going to stay it again in verses 19 through 21, this concluding principle. And, and I want you to just note briefly, I'm going to flesh this out more, how often in the Sermon on the Mount we see the thread of reward come again and again. Or they will have no reward, or their reward is here. They've received their reward. They will get no reward from their Father who is in heaven. This comes up again and again. We've seen it in the Beatitudes. We saw it in the previous section. It's just coming again and again, this idea of reward. And I'm going to flesh this out more in verses 19 through 21, where he really just drives it home, talking about where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And really what this is going to hit at is we have inherited a legacy that is not altogether biblical. It it has actually pervaded uh, or is pervasive in how it has impacted the church as a whole. And that comes straight from uh, a philosopher, Immanuel Kant, that that comes in, it's in the form of altruism, that a deed for it to be a good deed or a virtuous deed must have no self-interest. In other words, if you benefit or if you stand to gain, therefore the deed is not a good deed. It is uh, not virtuous in Kantian ethics. And we have inherited that. That has influenced our world more than we would like to think. And Jesus just smashes it again and again, uh, over and over. He just takes it to task and holds out reward in heaven as a motivator. Do not lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt. And we'll get into this later in chapter six. Uh, Rather, he says, lay up treasure in heaven. Seek a reward Come to him seeking a word. So we're going to deal with that. It's going to be uh, hopefully very profitable and helpful as you consider your own faith. And so uh, you'll just note that here embedded in this, even in this introduction of Jesus. Now, he's going to transition here. This makes sense why he's transitioning to this inner issue of, uh, of the heart in good deeds. Because remember, Matthew 5.48, he says, you must be whole, even as your heavenly father is whole. Or your translation may say perfect. Either of those could be substituted one for the other. In other words, he summed up Matthew 5, you are to be holy on the inside and the outside. In Matthew 23, he's going to take the scribes and Pharisees to task because they led the people in external holiness, external displays of righteousness. In Matthew 23, he's going to say, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, you brood of vipers. Over and over again, he 
He just really takes them to task publicly. Here he's building his case that's going to come to full flower later. But he wants you and me to be holy on the inside and the outside. He doesn't want people who are fake, false, or living a a double-minded or double-hearted life because that's going to leave you a hollow shell of flourishing, not true flourishing. That's the appearance of flourishing, and it dissolves under the weight of circumstances. When things like COVID-19 or the economy crashes or anything tragic happens in your life, you find that hollow shell is empty and it dissolves. It is not true flourishing. The flourishing God offers flourishes no matter what's happening around it because it's something God is doing and it's the state of the heart and he doesn't want his people to buy into the alternative to the falsehood offered by the world. So Jesus invites all of us to live this true life and true wholeness with true flourishing under his reign and for his glory. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Jesus is transitioning here. What is a threat to wholeness? You be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. What is a threat to that? What's the opposite of being whole? You might think the opposite of this righteousness, wholeness, is wickedness, just rampant wickedness, rampant unrighteousness, rampant unwholeness. You might think it's that. Indeed, that is a threat. But Jesus is going to interact with something that is equally probably more dangerous than blatant unrighteousness for God's people. What's, what's more dangerous than blatant unrighteousness for you this morning? Here it is. One of the greatest threats to God's people, to all of us, is not rampant wickedness, but rather it's a skin-deep righteousness that is only surface level. That's the greatest threat to this wholeness. It's not rampant wickedness. It's a skin-deep righteousness. It only stays on the surface, not true wholeness. So Jesus addresses this in chapter 6. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness. Pay attention, that first word. Be careful. Take care. Stay alert. Use caution. Keep your eye on this. Now, I like to, I like to shoot guns. I like to uh, mountain bike. I like to do other exciting things of that nature. Uh, maybe it's because uh, uh, in my former police officer days, you get some adrenaline, and now I have to do something, you know, sitting in a chair in an office just doesn't, uh, doesn't necessarily get my adrenaline pumping, so I don't know, but I like to do these things, and, and anytime you have somebody who's new to these things, you naturally give warnings, don't you? If you're on a firing range, keep your firearm pointed downrange. You don't want the guy who's like, hey, I need help, and right? Uh, or, or, and you assume every firearm you pick up is loaded, right? You don't want the dude who's just like, is this got bullets in it? Right? No, you don't want that person. You assume everything, you give warnings. Hey, pay attention, be careful. If you're going to go riding with me, if you're a new rider and you don't ride a lot, then I might give you a little overview. Hey, here's your brake. The right brake is the back tire. The left brake is the front tire. Do not clamp down on the left brake too hard. What's going to happen? There it is. You go right over the handlebars, broken clavicle, wonderful time, all right? We might give these, hey, 
be, beware, pay attention. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, hey, this is good, pay attention. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them. That's Jesus just trying to implore you, hey, pay attention to this. Now, here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say don't practice your righteousness before other people. He doesn't say that. He actually commanded the opposite of that. He, he commanded that earlier. Verse 16, chapter 5. You remember this? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He doesn't say not to practice your righteousness before other people at all. What's at stake here is the motive of the heart. Doing good for the glory of God, not necessarily to be seen by others. Doesn't mean others can't see it. It's that you're not doing it to be seen by them. Now, here's a good example. We could think of Daniel. We just finished Daniel not long ago, uh, the, the prophet Daniel. You remember Daniel in chapter 6, verse 10? The, the Persian Empire is now uh, in control. And it says this, there's some guys scheming against Daniel. They're trying to trap him. Daniel's righteous, and he, he's faithful to his God. And here's what Daniel 6.10 says as they're scheming. Uh, the, the king had just signed a document to cease all prayer to any man or other God for 30 days. And here's Daniel's response. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Here's the key phrase. As he had done previously. So Daniel had a practice, a daily practice of praying three times a day toward Jerusalem. Prior to this, it didn't catch anybody's attention overly. People saw him, but it wasn't like, oh, look, there's Daniel. It's just like, oh, there's that guy praying to whoever. We don't know. He's, he's not a Persian. Those Israelites, they do their own thing. And now, suddenly, it's catching people's attention. And Daniel doesn't suddenly go up and open his windows in defiance. No, Daniel had a practice of doing this regularly, and he would not change it to be seen by men or not seen by men. He was going to worship God no matter what, whether people saw him or not. And so it is. We are to practice our righteousness. It should be evident. It should be before the face of God, karam deo, for his glory. And Jesus says, as you do this, be careful. As you practice this righteousness, be careful, be aware, pay attention. Don't do it to be seen by others. The Greek word here, to be seen by others, that Greek word is where we get our English word for theater. Theater. Think about that. What do you, what do you do in a theater? If you're going to go to the theater, you're going to see actors, one actor playing, sometimes in the ancient world, two parts. They're going to be performing, pretending to be somebody else. As they act, they're going to hope at the end that you're going to see them and <laughs> wonderful, excellent acting. 
They'll be applauded for their performance. That's the Greek word there, in order to be seen by others. Jesus says your righteousness is to, is to be a reflection of who you are. Think about that. Your righteousness is to be a reflection of who you are, not an attempt to be what you are not so you can be praised for it. Let your good works reflect what God has done in here, not try to appear to be something you aren't. Now, you have to ask, why would we do this? Jesus gets to why we would do this, and and it really hits all of us. Why would we do this? The answer, we want a reward. That's why. We want a reward, and that's not bad. We want it from the wrong people or wrong person. We want the reward. And what's that reward? It's the praise of men. Verse 2, Jesus goes on to say, Thus, when you go to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. The praise of man, or we could call it the fear of man, is a powerful anti-gospel enslaving motivator. To do things for the praise of others or out of fear of man is enslaving as a motivator. Now, it isn't necessarily bad to be thought to want to be thought of well by other peoples, by outsiders. It's actually one of the qualifications for a pastor, believe it or not. You have to be thought well of by outsiders. It's not necessarily bad to have that desire, but it must be held in proper relation to God. If not, this driving motivator enslaves people. It leads to people who are people pleasers. Are you a people pleaser? You say, what is that? These are people who don't say no to anything or anyone, even if saying yes will run them into the ground and make them not meet their other God-ordained obligations. It's those who say yes to every request, even when it means they get run ragged. They want to please people because under the hood of their heart, they fear man. It's enslaving. It's enslaving. In others, so that's for some people, it leads to people-pleasing. In others, it leads to being to having double-hearted devotion, to having double-hearted devotion, which Jesus is going to say is impossible. Nobody can serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon or man. You'll either hate the one and love the other, despise the one and, and, and serve the other. And ultimately, it leads to the opposite of wholeness and what is a hindrance to our flourishing, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And hypocrites will never be whole, because deep inside, they know, and God knows, they're fake. Hypocrites will never be whole. But how many live like this, or how many of us are tempted in some ways to have some degree of this? The Proverbs speak directly to the fear of man, Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man is a snare. It entices you with praise, and as you seek this praise, you find it's like chasing a rainbow. It's an ever-moving target. You get close only to find it's moved again, and it vanishes at the end. Fear in the Bible is more broadly encompassing than how we use the word fear. We think of the fear of man, 
fear of the Lord. It's more broadly encompassing than how we use the word fear. Uh, when you come across it, uh, you'll find uh, we tend to think of this idea of fear as this cowering fear, like when you come across a centipede or a bee, suddenly you turn into a ninja, the bee swatting them away. We think of that cowering kind of fear. Maybe I'm the one who turns into the ninja, nobody else. I just swat around. The scriptures use this idea of, of fear in a sense of a response of the heart that controls the person. So fear is a response of the heart that is controlling you. That's how the scriptures tend to think of it. What you think, it controls what you do, it controls what you say. And so the Bible says, in contrast to the fear of man being a snare, Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a, anybody know? Fountain of life. It's helpful to kind of trace this through the Bible a little bit. The Bible opens up, and you could say, with Adam and Eve being controlled by something other than the fear of the Lord. And you see the havoc it wreaked on our world. Hebrews 11, we think of Noah, who built the ark. Hebrews 11 says, in reverent fear, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. We could think of Abraham who was controlled by fear of man and lied about his wife, Sarah. He said she was his sister. Interesting how Isaac did the same thing, his son. We could think of Israel, the nation in Exodus. They feared Pharaoh, a false god, so much that they wouldn't leave. They wouldn't find freedom. And so God taught them properly whom to fear, didn't he? You'll fear me. And God's fear, fear of the Lord, proved to be a redemptive fear. It set them free from tyranny, from slavery, to bring them to life. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. We could think of the 12 spies in the land of Canaan. And the inhabitants, you remember the 12 spies? They, they saw the inhabitants, they were spying out the land, they came back and they said, it seemed that they're giants in the land. We seem to them and to ourselves like grasshoppers. They felt small. Passages like this have led others like Ed Welch to say, uh, to write books like when people are big and God is small. Fear of man can, can make God look small and can make men look big. We could fast forward testaments and think of Peter in the garden as Jesus is on trial or false trial. Suddenly, strong, rambunctious Peter, who walked on waves, is asked by a little girl, aren't you one of his disciples? And suddenly, Peter's gripped by the fear of man and says, I never knew him. I'm not one of them. In each of these cases, the fear of men or the desire to praise, to have the praise of men, or to save your own neck became a controlling fear. And it's this fear that values the praise of men and ignores the praise of God. And the Bible says it's always a snare. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others. Check your heart, Jesus says. Who am I doing this for? Mr. Deeds does righteousness for the praise of men, to be seen by them. Always has an eye to their approval or disapproval. Mr. Delight, on the other hand, point number two, we see in verse three to four, 
verses 3 to 4, Jesus instructs this. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's an idiom for being done in secret. So that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus instructs, Mr. Delight sets his eyes not on the praises of men, but he sets his eyes to the Father who sees in secret and who rewards. Mr. Delight delights God. Mr. Delight doesn't seek the praise of men, nor is he paralyzed by their displeasure. Rather, he sets his face towards God, and Jesus says God sees the secret places of the heart, and he rewards them. So, Mr. Delight aims to hear these words from God at the end that we all hope to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Mr. Delight sees the baptism of Jesus. He sees the Spirit descend on the Son, and the Father say, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we see that in Christ, that same delight is now over, sung over, applied over his children. I delight in you, my son and my daughter, for the sake of Christ. So the result is whether people thank him or not, whether people see Mr. Delight or not, whether they recognize him or not, he aims to please the God who sees everything. The result is his obedience is perseverant like Daniel's. It's impervious to hardship like Joseph's, and it's got an eye toward the purposes of God like Job, and it clings to the promises of Christ so it can say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Because his delight is in the Lord. Let's take some time to apply it now. Let's apply it. So that's kind of the overview of the structure. It's a little mini exposition of the passage. Now let's get to some application. This is where we really get the rubber meets the road, okay? This is going to hit all of us in different ways. So directly, how do we directly apply this? First, obviously, verses 2 through 4 is about your giving. And so that's how we're going to start. We're going to apply it to your giving. Let me ask you this. When you give your offering... When you're going to give to missions or you drop it in the box or give it online, is it for the purpose of honoring God or for the praise of men? You say, it's for the purpose of honoring God. Praise God. Let's flesh that out some. Let's start out who Jesus starts out with, giving to the poor. Some people give money. Some people give time. Some people give resources. Let's talk about giving money. Some people, sadly, I have found in, in my time in church life, I grew up in church and now I'm a pastor at a church, some people try to use money to influence decisions. Did you know that? They try to use money to influence the decisions in the church to, to go the way they want. Others in different organizations, we've seen this, they give those, I, I referenced it, they give those giant checks and, and they call the media to come as they're giving this giant check. Why? Why do they do that? And why does it work? Because we love the praise of men. We want to be seen in the culture. We want to be praised by the culture. 
Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Give in secret, and the Father who sees that secret, he'll reward you. He'll reward you. Some give time. Let's talk about that, because maybe uh, you're like many. You don't have money. You give time. Uh, let me ask you this. Who do you give your time for? Let's, let's open that up a little bit. Do you feel slighted if your sacrifice of time isn't celebrated? Or maybe it's not celebrated as you wanted it to be. One pastor said this about those who give in this way. Uh, sometimes you'll hear people say, I- I'm good to serve behind the scenes. I'm good to just be behind the scenes. So long as someone peeks behind the curtain. Or maybe you broadcast on social media every good thing you do. And you get disappointed if you don't get a certain amount of likes or shares. This is difficult because on one hand, we're to stir one another up by love and good deeds. And one of the ways we stir one another up is by doing good deeds. And those others, as our light shines before men, they see our good works, they give glory to God. It inspires others to say, hey, maybe I should do, I can do something good too. And, and so we, we, we want to do that. We see these inspiring uh, Oprah stories. Psychologists have actually done studies and, and they've done uh, where they show somebody who does inspiring acts of service and people just watch this and others did things that were more selfish and they have these different tests and they found that those who watched the inspiring acts of service were generally more motivated, more often uh, or more readily able to help and took initiative to help in times when, when something presented itself. And it's just a fascinating study to see how good works can, in, can encourage more good works. We think of that whole concept of pay it forward, right? You go into the drive-thru, pay it, and then the person pays, and however long the drive-thru goes, as many people paid it forward, it's wonderful. Yay, there's news stories about it. And so we have this, this struggle because on one hand, we want to do good. We want to stir up others. On the other hand, we don't want to broadcast our righteousness before others to be praised by them. And so this can be a real challenge. Maybe this will help. If you're wondering whether I should put this in a public forum, whatever that is, social media, news article, I don't know, whatever public forum you're thinking about, should I share this? If you have a doubt, if you have a doubt, err on the side of Jesus' words. Let another's mouth praise you and not your own, or rather his wisdom. Let another's mouth praise you and not your own. If you have a doubt, if you're not sure, err on that. Maybe I'm, I'm not going to broadcast this. I'm going to err on the side of, I'm going to let another's mouth praise me. I'm going to let the God who sees in secret reward me, and if nobody else sees it, it's all going to be evened out at the end. One reason in the church that I created a private Facebook group for members, so members can be a part of a private Facebook group. I'm not saying it's the best venue or, or you know, maybe there's a better one. If you know of a better one, let me know. But, but, but a closed group, this is one of the reasons why I did it, so that we could share at church amongst each other things that are happening because we all have a vested interest in one another and what happens here that we've covenanted to, and it's a wonderful thing, so that we can share prayer, requ- prayer requests, ministry opportunities, and really cool things that are happening in the church. That's one of the reasons I did this, so that 
we can do that and not simultaneously broadcast our righteousness before the whole world who may not have any other vested interest other than maybe do I just want them to see how cool we are, what we're doing, how vibrant it is here. Man, come, come check. And you see how dicey this can get. And do I want them to see this because I want them to come and see and hear life and find Christ or do I want them to come and see us, me? You see, this can get real dicey. So this is one of the reasons I did that, not the only one. But I want to take Jesus' words seriously. I don't want to practice my righteousness before others to be seen by them. It's a real problem in social media as it gives everybody an outlet to broadcast their righteousness. How many people jump on whatever social justice bandwagon presents itself? Maybe the original one might have been justice for Harambe. I don't know. And now it's, it's Afghanistan, and, and it's not bad to have a heart for these things, but what we find is that we are just led to and fro with anything that social media puts in front of us and pretend like that's the mission of the church. And so we'll spend all this time doing this stuff to be praised by others so that we can be just as woke or, or just as just or just as on board with all of these righteous deeds and in the meantime neglect calling widows in our church. In the meantime, neglect going to see those who are actually suffering within the body, but yet, socially, we're good. My righteousness is seen before others. No, this is a real problem in our society, a real problem for us individually and corporately. And Jesus says, beware, beware of practicing your righteousness before others. Don't let the world dictate your righteousness. Don't let anything else dictate your righteousness except for the pursuit of the kingdom of heaven. Seek first his righteousness and his kingdom. Or small groups is coming up. Ooh, small groups. People are hosting. I love small groups. What's going to happen? This is fun. Here's what's going to happen. Oh, I'm sorry things aren't as clean as they normally are. I'm sorry, uh, uh, I'm sorry that I, I dressed up uh, too much or, or I didn't dress up as much or uh, I'm sorry we didn't bring more food or uh, and we, I'm sorry this, I'm sorry that, I'm, so, I'm sorry. And, and what's really behind all of this? What's behind this I'm sorry? Is it not that we want people to think a certain way about us? I've done it. I've had it done to me. Is it not that we want people to, to see a certain presentation of ourselves, that we're more put together than, than what we're presenting, and, and why do we care so much? Or why do we use some language with church people or around a pastor and then other language at work or at school? We make some jokes with believers and other jokes with unbelievers. Why do we do that? Why do we express thoughts and opinions on the internet that we would never bring up at church? Why can you be upset and visibly angry and snarling and sweating with your family member and then suddenly in an instant change in front of other people? Oh, hi. Things are great here. No problems. Why do we do these things? Why do we suck in a little bit when we pick on outfits and put them on, right? Why do we do these things? Because in a sense, 
We all struggle with this. We all put on our righteous face, our church face. We sound the trumpet in our own way and receive our reward. This is practicing righteousness before others. We could say for attraction. Attraction. We want to attract the praise of men. But sometimes we practice righteousness as a distraction. As a distraction. We practice it as attraction. We want the praise of men. Sometimes we practice it as a distraction. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. Sometimes we practice righteousness to distract others from seeing or addressing areas of sin in our lives. Sometimes it's a distraction. It's an ink cloud, like an octopus, to get out. For instance, we might say, look, hey, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but look at these other areas I'm growing in. When somebody confronts you with something. Why are you just focusing on, on this? Stop being so judgmental. And then they, they point to all these other good things they're doing, putting their righteousness before you to distract. Don't be so judgmental. Don't be so narrow-minded. And ultimately, they're trying to shift attention by way of distraction so that they can remain double-hearted or double-minded. And it works. It works, doesn't it? Because we hear it, we say, I don't want to be judgmental. Oh, I, I'm not being judgmental. Or, oh, you are doing these things good. Rather than saying, let's, let's keep the target right on the heart. Oh, repent and find life. This isn't about judging you. There's no condemnation in Christ. This isn't about being harsh. This is about flourishing and growth. I want you to have more joy, more satisfaction, more relationship, more community. Come find life in Christ. Let's talk about these other righteous things. That's good. And now hear me come in as a cheerleader and say, keep going and turn from this area in your life because it's sabotaging your joy. Sometimes we practice righteousness as an attraction. Sometimes we practice our righteousness as a distraction. In both cases, God sees that secret place of our heart. He sees every good deed done in secret. He sees every deed we do for the praise of others, and he offers us something better. And today, God invites all of us, you and me, to be whole, to turn holy to Christ, to find our true righteousness in Christ. And so beware, KBC, of practicing our righteousness to be seen by other people. And now we're going to head into the Lord's Supper. We get to examine ourselves, to search our hearts, to search our minds. And we could ask this question before we partake. Am I whole before God? Am I karam deo in my outer life and in my inner life? And if you are, beloved, partake freely, joyfully. And if you search and if you find areas that, that you need to deal with God seriously in, I invite you today, come. In our time of prayer response, in our time of uh, praying here in a moment, come. I'd love to pray with you and for you. And together, let us live before his presence for his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word.
Thank you for this warning of Christ, for his calling our attention to not only our sin struggles and the issues of our heart, but also our external deeds of righteousness. May we truly hear your words in a little bit, in a few weeks, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and know that all of these things will be added to us. May we live, speak, think, and act for the praise of your name. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.